0: Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. You can't experience the diversity of either cookies or sex without first appreciating the nuance that vanilla contributes to the mix. Vanilla is worthy of celebration, and sometimes vanilla is worthy of adornment. Not with a flavor that will alter or mar its intrinsic perfume, but with a bit of decoration, a touch of flair... A dash of sprinkles on top. From the book *With Sprinkles on Top* by Stephanie Gorlick.
1: Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast.
0: I'm M. And I'm G. And in this episode, G and I will be interviewing Stephanie Gorlick about her book with Sprinkles on Top. Stephanie Gorlick has her PhD and LMSW to name just a few of her qualifications and is a certified sex therapist and master social worker who specializes in working with gender, sexuality, and relationships. She is a sought after clinical supervisor, media consultant, and conference presenter who has appeared in media ranging from CNN and the Washington Post to Cosmopolitan and Teen Vogue. She is the award-winning author of the professional books The Leather Couch and Kink-Affirming Practice. And before we get into the heart of the this interview and this episode, I first want to thank you for sending this book along with sprinkles on top for both G and I to read.
1: Fascinating read.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I mentioned this when we were talking a little bit in our pre-talk about how I actually know about you before you had reached out to us about coming on the podcast, which is, We've actually mentioned Stephanie Gorlick before in a previous episode, and if we were professional podcasters, Pied Pipers, we'd have the episode number for you. But we did an episode on Kink on a Budget, and we cited one of Stephanie's articles in that episode. So it's really cool to get to actually interview someone who we've talked about before.
2: I love that, and I'm so glad that we have that connection already. It always makes you know, chatting with a new person a little bit more, more meaningful.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing. As you as you might be able to tell, we're both very excited about this prospect. You are the first person we've interviewed that wasn't like a personal friend of ours, so we really appreciate you coming onto the podcast. And that's
0: not to say we we've had lots of requests, but we were like, oh, we're not sure if we should, you know, engage in in this way and doing these interviews. We were a bit like, we're not sure how we want to feel out this podcast, but. When you wrote, I was so excited. I was like, gee, can we finally do this? Can we finally interview someone? And uh, she gave in.
2: Well, I am super excited to be your first ever like official non friend Circle guest. Thank you so much for that.
1: So I guess first question I have for you is what sort of inspired you to write this book? Was this like a common issue? I guess why don't you describe a little bit about what the book is about? Since I think we've only mentioned the title so far.
2: Yeah, so the subtitle is everything that vanilla people and their kinky partners need to communicate, explore and connect. And I think, you know, the the that kind of gives it a nice little cliff notes explanation. And I wrote it because I do specialize in working with gender, sexuality and relationship differences. And primarily because of the nature of my work, that is uh, folks who identify as kinky or as BDSM practitioners. And what I started to notice was that I was having as many people who were not kinky call me as people who were. But they were all calling me with the same general concern, which is I really want to be able to understand my partner. I really want my partner to be able to understand me. I'm not sure how to have these conversations. I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected. my vanilla clients were calling and saying, I'm afraid that I'm going to learn something that makes me uncomfortable. There was a lot of fear around how can I be my most authentic self in this relationship. And so kind of out of those client conversations and out of those case consults with my colleagues, uh, Sprinkles was born.
1: Oh, that's amazing. So, uh, so I feel like you were answered first question, but what, I, what inspired you to write this book But, like, would you say this is, like, a very common, like, compared to other issues that people come to you with, would you say this is a common problem? Because at least for, we both talked about it, and it was both of us, both of us found it hard to imagine dating somebody completely vanilla at this point who wasn't already aware of our kink identities.
2: And I think that that is... A common mindset for people who are already really comfortable in their kink identities and perhaps have, you know, a a kink community or space around them outside of their their intimate relationships. A lot of my clients don't necessarily have that when they first come to me. They are exploring their fantasies or, or experimenting with their desires, just kind of like on their own. Sometimes just them themselves with whatever their preferred erotica is. Sometimes it is with their partner, but they're struggling with sort of a mismatch in the desire that they have versus what their partners have. And so sometimes a part of that work absolutely is helping them find community so that they can have that sort of normalized supportive experience. But yeah, I I do have kinky clients on my caseload who will tell me, you know, I would never be happy with somebody that doesn't understand and ideally share my preferences that I, when I'm dating, I date other kinky people, that it is something, it is a choice I make. I put the information in dating profiles. I meet people at munches and not on dating sites, that sort of thing. So I would say it's probably in my practice about a 70-30 split between people like yourselves who know it, who they are, are comfortable sharing that and proactively seek out other people um, who align with that. That would be about 30% of my practice. And then the other 70 are the people that might not even realize that there are other people out there like them and who are really struggling sometimes to even accept their desires and their identity, much less to find a partner or share it with their partner.
0: So you've sort of answered this about like, who is this book geared towards? And I think, like you said, it's it's in the subtitle. It's right up front in the book. But this book is geared towards largely vanilla folks who their kinky partner might have just come out to them. Maybe even their kinky partner could have gifted them this book, right? As a way of saying like, hey, this is a part of me. Maybe we can start to have this conversation. But you know, what I found when I was reading this book is even though as G said, like, both of us are in this space where we kind of like almost exclusively date other kinky people, not by any means like trying to say like we won't date vanilla people, but just because the network and the community that we have. But what I found is that I do think this book can apply even for people who are not um, in a a relationship with someone who's vanilla or who is vanilla. Something that I found when I was reading it was that it can be relatable as like a beginner in kink book because it has so many wonderful definitions explanations
1: yeah it's it it is a great primer just for just getting into the kinky scene Yeah, like which what makes, is it yeah which makes sense since it's geared towards telling vanilla people about the kink scene
0: and i also found and maybe you hinted about this a little bit stephanie about like this mismatch and so something that i also took away while i was reading it is that even if i might not come out to a partner as kinky like come out to a vanilla partner as kinky I might be coming out to another kinky person as like, this is my kink that I've kept secret. And a lot of the book talks about like secret holding and sharing. Mm-hmm. And so even the act of like saying like, I'm into this thing and I didn't tell you before, even if that person's kinky, I think a lot of the, the concepts in this book can apply. So I'm wondering if you, when you were writing this, did you envision any of those applications or?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the broadest audience is... You know, more vanilla oriented folks who are struggling to understand their partners, but certainly not limited to that. And I think every single, you know, group or audience that you just mentioned absolutely can benefit. Uh, I was very careful in my language choice with this and I pretty consistently refer to it as a desire difference because um, some people who are kink-identified will describe it as being kink-oriented. You know, they their kink identity, their, I don't know, their masochism or their dominance or their specific fetish, whatever it might be, is as much a part of their core identity as their gender identity or their sexuality. And I want to hold space and respect that. But also other kinksters don't feel that way. And they consider it to be, you know, a form of like, intimate recreation or a sexy Mm -hmm. hobby. And so to write a book that only talks about kink as a possible orientation would be really limiting. And talking about desire difference opens up a lot of doors for a lot of different people. Even, and I love that you brought this up, even people that are both kinky, but maybe have differences in what their kinks look like. Even within of BDSM and kink, there are some practices, some ideas that are more accepted than others. And it is possible to experience you know, guilt and shame and stigma even in a community that loves to say, you know, your kink's not my kink, but your kink's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so being able to help people have a communications framework for talking about things that might be very, very important to them, but make them very nervous about sharing with somebody they care about, I think is relevant to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, this is something that, that I brought up with M, And it is, so one thing I was a little surprised by was that you talked about age play in your book. And it is a topic I have thought about covering on the podcast, but have been a little wary of because, as you mentioned, in the kink scene, it is very controversial. How did you, I guess, how did you decide to approach that subject would be my first question.
2: So that piece is included in a broader section where I'm really trying to de-escalate any fears that my vanilla readers might be having. Mm -hmm. Fears about what their partner's desires might say about their partner. And age play is certainly one of those. I think that sometimes kinky people lose sight of how... Lots of different BDSM and power exchange practices are perceived by outsiders. You know, we have lots of people that are like really heavy sadomasochists, and vanilla people will look at that with the same degree of skepticism and concern and fear that they do with age play. We have people that are into, you know, CNC and consensual non consent, or even just more rough body play. And I've had so many vanilla partners say, I saw their porn and it freaked me out. Mm. You know, I saw their porn and I don't know what kind of person would want to watch that. And so part of it for me was just not focusing on any one thing, but to think about all the different things that might evoke a concern or a fear or a worry response in somebody that knows nothing about BDSM or kink or has very little knowledge Mm -hmm. and to try and speak to them and to explain that, you know, somebody can be a really hardcore masochist and not want to engage in self-harm. Somebody can like rough body play and not want to hurt their partner. Somebody can explore age play and have no interest in underage partners. And so it was less about trying to advocate for or take a stance on any specific thing than it was just talking about the reality of how these various desires and behaviors and expressions are perceived by somebody that doesn't necessarily have a kink aware framework for it. And to talk to those people and try and explain that a good majority of their concerns are usually unfounded.
0: Absolutely. I think you did a great job in that section. You addressed a lot of like the common fears. And that sort of leads into this question about, and you just mentioned the the fear aspect and the oh no, what is my partner? You know, are they into XYZ because they're extrapolating? And you did a great job. I also love that you bolded like very important parts of like, look, this does not mean this. That was really great. But so, like, one of my questions was what are some of the common challenges you discovered when working with vanilla folks who have kinky partners? And so you mentioned the fear, but What are some of the other primary challenges?
2: One of the biggest challenges is the pacing of working with mixed desire couples, because often somebody who is especially perhaps coming from a more blank slate place where they don't have a lot of kink knowledge, this isn't necessarily something that they've thought about or considered, they need a lot of time to process, to internalize, to reflect, to consider how this might, you know, align or not with their own sort of erotic map and that can take a lot of time. And on the other hand, often I have, you know, their corresponding kinky partner who is so excited that it's finally out in the open and I've been holding this in for and I can't wait to tell them about it and to share things and to show things and to maybe try stuff and it's just the the world is my oyster now and those two mindsets can cause some challenges so finding ways to you know hold space for somebody that needs to kind of have the time to learn and process and think about how that might fit in with their world and also not kind of stomping on the joy and the release that comes with finally letting go of something we've been holding back for a while can often be a big challenge because if it's not handled well then one person can start to feel pressured and the other person can start to feel like shamed or or stigmatized a little bit silenced is probably the best word so so finding a, a pace that works well for both or everybody involved in these conversations is one of the bigger challenges
1: yeah i can definitely see that and i guess one question that that popped in my mind while you're saying that is so one of the one of the One of your sections of the book, you talk about sort of the difference in like mental health between like a kinky population and the wider population. And you noted that there was sort of a greater instance of depression in the in the kinky audience. What you described was sort of sort of the 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 vomiting forth of ideas. Once you once you sort of feel like you can talk about it. It sounds a lot sort of like neurodivergent behavior. And one question I had was: do you think there's like a difference in like in the kinky population? Is like neurodivergence higher than like the standard population?
2: That is a phenomenal question. And it is one that research is only now beginning with. I have a colleague who is actually doing his PhD project, his dissertation on neurodivergence in the kink community. So hopefully we'll have some solid answers on that soon. It's interesting when researchers have studied sort of personality and mental health in in the kink community, they haven't really focused on neurodivergence historically. We know that there's this big myth that kinky people are kinky because they've had some sort of trauma or some sort of adverse experience. And we know that that's not accurate. You know, we've had multiple studies that have found that kinky people report rates of trauma at the same level that the mainstream population does. What's interesting there is that kinky people are more likely to have a PTSD diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I'm really curious about that because it seemed counterintuitive. So I'm curious.
2: I used to, when I was training other clinicians or when I was giving a lecture, I used to explain this as, well, that makes perfect sense because if somebody is kink-oriented and they are able to use kink to kind of reprocess some of their trauma or to recontextualize or reclaim power, that makes perfect sense. It's clearly in my mind 10 years ago or five years ago, a form of almost like self-therapy. But then I was talking to another colleague of mine who does a lot of work in the space. She and I are actually collaborating on another book on BDSM and kink. And she looked at me, she goes, or it's another example of anti kink bias. She goes, how do we know that they that, that they're more likely to get diagnosed with PTSD because they actually have a more intense reaction? versus how do we know if mainstream clinicians are looking at a kinky person telling the exact same story a vanilla person might and giving them a higher level of diagnosis because they're kinky. And I went, oh, we don't. And that is a really good point. And so one of the things that is on my bucket list is to um, someday find the funding or the research partnership that would allow her and I to actually do that work and to actually look at what does this mean when we say that the trauma rates are the same, but the PT diagnoses are higher? You know, is that sort of evidence that kink can be therapeutic for a kinky person? Or is that evidence that um, kinky people are more likely to be misdiagnosed because of their kink identities? And at this point, we don't really know. But I think it's a fascinating open question that we should be exploring more.
0: I loved, first of all, thanks for that answer, because I was curious so much about that discrepancy. And I think both of those explanations are obviously reasonable. And I I would love to know more about that research in the future if you pursue it. One of the really great things about this book is that it is full of really amazing scientific facts. And not only like the science, like the statistics, but also beyond just like science, science resources and being able to give at the end of, I don't know if it's at the end of every chapter that you give a couple of books, like here is some further reading. And I went through the book and I just highlighted like, oh, I've either read that one or, oh, I'm really interested in reading that now that you've kind of like set this book up. So I also found that that your book is a really great resource for other resources.
2: Yeah, I try really hard to make sure that anything I do is as evidence-based as possible. My editors, I drive them crazy with the quantity of my source citations. (laughs) But I also think that that's that's an important part of de-stigma work and an important part of normalizing is that it's all well and good for a therapist to say, well, you know, what you want is perfectly fine and you're a healthy and whole person for wanting it. And a, a client will look at, that therapist and say, well, I'm literally paying you to comfort me and reassure me. So of course you're going to tell me that. But if I can say, well, here are five studies that can show that the physiological impact of, I don't know, degradation play makes perfect sense as to why you might enjoy it. Or that puppy play actually has some really tremendous relationship building benefits. And it makes perfect sense that you would enjoy it. When we can actually bring, you know, peer-reviewed academic research into the treatment room or into the book that somebody's reading, I think that it just adds an extra layer of reassurance above and beyond while I'm Stephanie and I say so, so trust me.
1: I really like that attitude. You know, there's so much... I mean, even though there's been more kink acceptance, I'd say, over the past 10, 20 years, it still feels very much like the the culture is very much set against it. So another question is your book is also filled with very nice um, anecdotes from who I assume are your clients. Did you find it hard to get these anecdotes? Because it takes a lot of vulnerability to be open to just one other person, much less everybody who reads this book.
2: Yeah. So just point of clarification, none of the anecdotes are my personal clients because that I've feel like would be ethically problematic. I know some mass market sort of psychologists or therapists that write books will do that. I never want my, my clients to feel as if I'm asking them to do me a favor. I don't ever want them to feel as if, well, my therapist is asking me to do this. And so even though it makes me uncomfortable or I don't want to, I don't want to risk losing my therapist if I say no. So I kind of feel like I have to. I try to avoid anything like that in my practice. So, what I actually did was, I reached out to colleagues of mine, I reached out to friends of mine, and I posted in a variety of kink community forums looking for specific examples. I knew. Who I wanted to talk to in each chapter. I knew what sort of situation I wanted to speak to or to highlight. And I asked people, you know, is this your life? Would you be comfortable sharing this with me? And so some of the people that are in those profiles are personal friends of mine, a couple of them are professional colleagues. I think one or two might be clients of colleagues of mine where they said, you know, hey, this person's working on something. If you were interested, you could reach out to her. It was it was a really organic process and I tried really hard always to center people's voices in a way that lets them tell their own story without feeling like they are asked to perform or being obligated to me in any way.
0: I wanted to say that because we had just talked about like the science and all the citations and, you know, you're very evidence-based. And I think this comes down to something I've talked about a lot in academia, which is like what counts as evidence. And by bringing in these anecdotes for me, it was also, that is also a form of evidence. And so I also think it's very relatable to have these sorts of real life stories from people instead of just like, because you have the facts, which are great. But then to bring it back to a real world example, I think that really, for me, it kind of strikes you a little bit differently than the hard, cold facts, so to speak.
2: Yeah, this is my fourth book. This is my first written sort of for for couples, for some mass market audience. But this is my fourth book. And I've done that from the very beginning, because especially when we're doing academic writing or when we're talking about a population. I think it's so easy for the researcher or for the academic to kind of get into this almost like safari perspective, right? Like where we're Jane Goodall in the, in the jungle, like watching the gorillas and that's not appropriate. That's not okay. We should never be talking about or for people. We should be elevating their voices and and making sure that they have as much reach as possible. So if I'm going to take on the task of talking, you know, to other clinicians, about a population that we all work with, it's not my job to be the expert on that population. It's my job to bring the facts and the ideas and then to let the community speak for itself. So in every book I've ever written, I always make sure to include lived experience conversations and, and interviews or, or essays from people who, whose lives reflect whatever it is I'm trying to teach because my job is to teach, not to speak for. And I try to stay really grounded in that respect.
1: Speaking of teaching, I I've never seen this, this gender sexuality and relationship carousel or relationship diversity carousel before. Like, where did, did you develop that or did you find that somewhere?
2: So I developed that for my book, The Leather Couch, because there are lots of fabulous resources out there that help people understand sort of gender identity and sexuality and those components. But nothing that included the the aspects of identity that impact my clients, nothing that talked about, you know, sort of their sociosexuality, like how many partners do they want to have and how are those relationships structured? Nothing that talked about their power orientation, whether they were dominant or submissive or switchy or nothing at all. And for my clients, it felt inadequate to, you know, like bust out the the gender unicorn not to not to slam the gender unicorn it is adorable and it serves an important purpose but you know i would i would be doing psychoed with my clients and they would go through all of these and they would say but there's more and so we needed something that let the the sort of spectrum of kink identities also be explored and also have a place in those clinical conversations. And so when I was writing the leather couch, I worked with colleagues and community to develop the GSRD carousel. Uh,
1: it's an amazing tool.
0: Oh yeah, I also really enjoyed it and I agree. Like I actually I so in my research I use gender unicorn because I focus my research on gender, but if you have a vast, you know, variety of clients who are coming to you about and if they're just starting to understand where they fall in these wedges of like so so it so in the carousel you basically have like kind of like wedges around the circle right like a circle Mm -hmm. is like cut up like a pie almost yes and so each kind of wedge represents either it's like you know you have one for gender and sexuality but then you also have like you were saying like socio-sexuality and other aspects of, of relationship diversity. And so I think it's really nice, succinct way to look at the variety of that. And you invite the readers in your book to see where you and your partner or partners fall along these spectrums.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of why I called it a carousel is because, you know, when you are riding a merry-go-round, right? Like the horse goes up and down and the, the wheel goes around and round. And there's not this expectation that you're in a fixed place, that because you're sitting here, that that is immovable and unchanging. And I wanted to kind of build in the idea of fluidity, build in the idea that, you know, I might be sitting in a monogamous place right now, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't a poly in the past or that i'm not open to an open relationship again in the future and the same is true with so many other aspects of our identities including you know things like power expression i've worked with client couples where they're in a, a lifetime 24-7 DS dynamic and then the the submissive realizes that maybe they're a little bit switchy, you know, and that can that can cause some relationship issues that aren't necessarily damaging to the relationship, but that need some space to process. And so I wanted to create a tool that multiple people could put themselves on and kind of see where we are oriented to each other, but also that built in the idea that just because you're here right now doesn't mean that's where you've always been or where you'll always be. I I wanted the idea of the up and down of a carousel.
0: That is really cool. And as you were talking, I remembered one other concept from the book, which as someone who is pretty, like, I would say well Pretty well versed in kink and polyamory, you know, not that I, I know the exhaustive extent of those communities, but something that I didn't know about before reading your book was something called radical monogamy that you talk about, because this is not just an overview of kink, but for the vanilla person, something that they might want to know is that kinky people might, like, even though the majority, as you cite the statistics, the majority of kinky people are monogamous. But the rates of non monogamy are probably a little bit higher than the vanilla population, for example, or they might be more like into those monogamish or those like because they, they might have play partners and things like that that are kind of in maybe an in between space. And so one thing that you brought up is radical monogamy. And I had never heard that before. So how did you stumble upon radical monogamy and how does it relate into your book?
2: I actually came across the term when I was doing some research into religiosity and, and BDSM. I'm uh, working on a book chapter for a colleague of mine's project talking about working with kinky people who are also religious. It might sound counterintuitive, but my two favorite populations to work with are my my kinksters and also my deeply religious. I love being able to work with a couple who might not have ever had much exposure to sex ed or to, you know, building a, a neurotic vocabulary or even understanding what the options are in terms of pleasure within their relationship. And I really love doing that work, especially because I am a person of faith. I like being able to bring that perspective. And so many people, I think, I think that one of the few areas where there is some some stigma, perhaps maybe a little bit of side eye in the kink community is towards folks that are monogamous, I think. And and that's certainly true in the world of sexology. I, I am unique among my peers in being more monogamous than the norm. And sometimes there's this idea that, well, you just haven't fully processed yet. You just haven't done the work of unpacking patriarchy yet. so you, You're just falling into a social norm. You're not making an intentional choice. And so there can be a lot of sort of dismissiveness towards people who might be incredibly kinky in many ways, but not interested in non-monogamy. And so bringing in this idea of radical monogamy, bringing in this idea of monogamy that is a choice that the partners make together, not because they're just settling into social norms and not doing good work of consciousness raising, but because it actually is what they want for their relationship. And there's an intentionality and a purpose behind it. And I think that especially for some of my more vanilla readers, you know, sometimes it can feel like a slippery slope where, you know, if I let my partner spank me tonight and tie me up tomorrow, then inevitably they're going to want to have sex with somebody else. And that can be true for some people. It can be a path where kink and non-monogamy are intersected, but it doesn't have to be. And so I wanted to make sure that I was holding space for people who were fully willing to explore all kinds of kinky play, but were really grounded in the exclusivity of their relationship in a way that was thoughtful and intentional and grounded in what they wanted, not necessarily just thoughtless, reactionary social conformity. And I don't think that that is a perspective that we get a lot when we're talking to or moving through the kink community. I think that sometimes there's a non-monogamy expectation that can feel alienating to people who truly identify as kinky but don't identify as non-monogamous.
1: That's great. I, it sounds like we might have to invite you back so we can have a talk about kink and religion because that's Well
2: we did do spirituality
0: and kink, a whole no, episode about
1: it. But we can do another episode Oh
0: sure. I yeah I will say it's so my one of my personal interests is religion. And I'm a religious person, spiritual person, and I, we did an episode on spirituality and kink, and I really enjoyed all of the aspects that you brought up in the book on religion and kink, especially there was a little bit of discussion around this. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact term, but CDD or Christian. Christian uh,
2: Domestic Discipline.
0: Yes, yes. And you were very clear that this is not what kink is. Yes, yes. So we don't have to get
2: unless you wanna dive into that a little bit right now.
0: I I thought that, that was a really great discussion.
2: I'm not sure how much how how much of a tangent you want me to go on, but I, I will say that the the mindset and the ideas around consent and compliance and submission in negotiated consensual BDSM versus non-negotiated, imposed Christian domestic discipline are, are very, very different. And one of the biggest differences is this idea that if The female partner, because it is only ever the female partner, is not appropriately submissive to her male head of household, then she is literally putting her spiritual life at risk. That, you know, she's not just in danger of, you know, punishment for breaking a rule the way that any other submissive might but you know her the, the idea is that you know her her eternal salvation is at risk but she runs the is the strong probability of going to hell if she is not appropriately surrendered in her relationship with her partner. And that to me is so antithetical to the idea of negotiated consensual kink and the idea that a woman might not identify as a submissive. Maybe the woman is the one that should be and is the best suited to temperament wise head of household. But certainly I don't think that anyone's power exchange decisions should be made with the threat of their soul. I think that whenever something goes from, I'm not telling you this, God is telling you this, that we've entered into a form of coercive control that doesn't align with consensual kink.
1: Yeah, I wasn't even aware that that was a thing.
0: (laughs) I didn't, I've never heard it phrased like that. So that was a new factoid for me as well, the CDD and learning about that. And I think you, you presented it very well and clearly distinguished it from kink, which I think is another benefit of this book as someone who might be vanilla and reading it. But even as someone who's kinky, you know, G and I both learned a lot.
1: Go ahead.
2: I was just gonna say the the world of Christian domestic discipline is a rabbit hole If you google it you will find blogs from their their sort of thought leaders and blogs from usually more husbands and wives, occasionally wives about their day-to-day lives um, It's one of the few things one of the few sort of dynamics I've read about where I've had lifelong, master slave owner property sort of dynamic people look at me and go that's really problematic i'm worried for them so they're you know it's not about the the degree of power exchange i'm totally comfortable with people having 24 7 dynamics or even you know owner property or ms dynamics but it's the 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 culture that it exists within. They don't consider themselves to be kingsters at all. They would firmly disavow any sort of BDSM identity. And it is so incredibly gendered and at its core non-consensual. I mean, we're talking about a community of young women who are being raised to believe that this is the only healthy way to have a relationship and who are married very young and who are then in what the husband perceives as what I would it's an authority exchange relationship the the husband holds authority the wife does not and if the wife fails to submit to the husband's authority she is putting her immortal soul at risk and I have had some case consults with people who had reached out to me because Well, my partner is curious about Christian domestic discipline, and I'm trying to learn more. And I know you do a lot with power exchange, and I wanted to talk to you. And so I can't say how often, you know, oh, it's just another form of kink, or it's just a form of BDSM play is being used to rationalize this versus where that rejection of those languages, that languages, but on the off chance any of my readers were trying to parse out the differences in their mind, I wanted to draw a very clear, clear line in the book.
1: Yeah, it does. There's a lot of I feel like there's a lot of difference between the the intent, like even though like some of the practices might be the same, the intent is very different. Yes, Absolutely. So just to as much as I've enjoyed this tangent, just to circle back to your book. Of course. So throughout this book, there are some really great worksheets that you've put in here. And also, I want to mention to our audience folks, they are available for free online. How did you how did you come up with these worksheets? They come up like through your daily practice or how did you come up with them?
2: So these are the current iteration of things that, you know, have gone through several evolutions over time as I've worked with my clients. I, I try in my practice not to give my clients homework. I always stress that therapy is not graded. You know, there's no even pass fail. Either you you put in the effort that you feel is justified or you don't. And I work with whatever you bring to the table. So I I try not to give homework, but I do try to give resources. And I try to give conversation starters. And I try to offer things that if my clients choose to engage with them, might enrich our our sessions. And so the worksheets in the book kind of came out of my years of practice, both with individuals and couples, to help people think deeply about their fantasies, their desires, their erotic map how to talk to each other about those things. And over time, they kind of evolved into the tools that you see in the book. Uh, One is a a checklist slash fill in the blank where I I try to help people who often aren't given a space to think about their fantasies, to think about their erotic desires, a place to do that. And uh, often we we don't necessarily have a big erotic vocabulary and it can be hard for people tell their partner what they want if they don't even have the language to describe it or if they don't even have a full picture of what's on the menu so that's why i tried to do it as checklists and check boxes so that even if it wasn't something that they had necessarily thought of in that way before when they're doing the worksheet they go oh yeah totally that's that's definitely something i'm into And giving them a space to kind of think in detail, granular detail, about their own fantasies and desires, while also sort of expanding the vocabulary they have to speak to it. And then the other one is... is I would almost say like a Mad Libs, except the goal is not to make each other laugh. The goal is to turn each other on. And it's a structured way that somebody could take all of this reflection and to take what they've figured out about their own desires, and kind of fill in those blanks, and then read it to their partner in order to help introduce that topic and help have that conversation. And I found them to be useful for my clients over the years of my practice. So I included them in the book as well. And yes, they are on my website, my author website, if you go to StephanieGorlick.com. they under the books section as free PDFs.
0: And we'll be posting that link in the show notes as well, as long as you're okay with that, Stephanie.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I do want to say, even as a kinky person and not as a vanilla person, I think that the worksheets are pretty amazing resources for anyone to explore their desires, just from my own personal perception. And I. before we finish up, this is the very last question I kind of have for you is, is there anything else that you want to leave us with from having written this book and the discussion that we've had so far? Is there anything in particular that you think that we should continue on with after this conversation?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is kind of tangential, but not really. It it ties into the next project that I'm working on, my, my next book. I think that one of the things that's also, I think, is one of the free PDFs. If not, it's definitely in the book is a variation on a yes, no, maybe list that also has not just yes, no, maybe for us, but also yes, I would be okay with you exploring that on your own. Yes, I would be okay with you doing that with somebody else and maybe, but I need to learn more first. And so having a couple more yes options, I think is important. But the reason why I bring that up is because one of the things that i've been thinking about a lot recently and doing a lot of work around recently is how we are negotiating not just what we do in the bedroom but the things that we do relationally outside of the bedroom whether that's you know sending each other spicy texts or spicy pictures whether it's having an account on fetlife or on submit all of the things that we use technology for to support and enhance and expand our relationships with each other with ourselves We need to be thinking about how we do that safely, too, and what sort of agreements we're making with our partners around the ways in which we're bringing technology into our relationships. So that is the other piece of what I've been doing. I do a podcast with my own partner about that called Securing Sexuality. And we have a book on the same subject coming out next year, also called Securing Sexuality. But, you know, so many toys are Bluetooth enabled or, you know, controllable from a distance. A lot of power exchange resources. I mean, there are Bluetooth enabled cock cages now and those have already been hacked at least once. So thinking about, you know, not only what am I comfortable doing with you, but how do I want that information shared? Am I comfortable with you saving my pictures? Am I comfortable with you deleting my text? Am I, you know, am I comfortable putting my profile picture on my Life page? All sorts of things like that, I think are important conversations to be having as well. And they're a logical extension of this, but they're the next step. Sprinkles is starting the conversation. And then once we get, you know, my clients or the readers to a place where they're in a good place with their partners and they have an idea of what they want to do, where and how, then I think having that tech conversation, how are we going to communicate about it? How are we going to schedule things? What toys are we going to use? And where are we going to find these resources? I think are is the next set of important conversations to have.
0: Thank you so much, Stephanie. And I know I just said that was the last question, but as you were talking, it made me think of another concept from your book that both G and I had never heard of before that is super fascinating, and it was the good giving and game, GGG. Yeah. Yeah. So if you would, I'm so sorry to because I was like, oh, that was a perfect place for you to end on. But this concept just blew my mind. And the fact that I've never heard about it before is just wild. What is it if you could just give a quick overview? And because it was kind of when you were talking about that yes, no, maybe like checklist, which is in your book, made me think of that.
2: Yeah, so Dan Savage, the Savage Love columnist, coined this, I think, back in like the early or mid-90s. I I want to, since you've asked the question, give Dan Savage a shout out, because he is actually the reason why I I do the work that I do in some ways. Back in the 90s, I was growing up in Milwaukee, and The Onion which we all know now is like the online satire source. The Onion used to be a free paper that was printed in Madison, available in Milwaukee. And Dan Savage, the Savage Love column was printed in The Onion. And I was in high school and my mother was reading some of the, like the satirical stories in The Onion and stumbled across Savage Love and banned me from ever bringing The Onion into the house again. Savage Love was obscene and she wanted nothing to do with it. And I was too young to be reading it. And, And so... Savage Love got the onion banned from my house, which, you know, everybody knows if you want a teenager to do something, you tell them they can't. All that meant was that every week when the latest issue of The Onion came out, I was going to the bookstore and instead of bringing it home, I would just read it at the bookstore. It was free. Nobody was going to stop me. And so Dan Savage was actually my point of entry into the world of sexology and into the world of sexual psychology and into the world of talking about these subjects. (laughs) If, if, He hadn't have been writing Savage Love, and if The Onion hadn't have been free in the 90s, I might not be doing the work I do right now. And so it makes perfect sense, you know, that I would put his uh, GGG, which means good, giving, and game, into the book. So when, when he conceptualizes it, what he says is that one should try to be good in bed, be giving in terms of time and pleasure to one's partner, and game for anything within reason. So good giving and game became kind of a a cultural shorthand for how can I know if I'm working to be a good partner? How can I know if I'm putting in the work to do what my spouse or my girlfriend or boyfriend or them friend wants to do? And so if you are trying to be good in bed, if you are giving of your time and giving them pleasure, and if you are game for most things, or at least game, and I would say, to have the conversation about things. Be game for the learning. Be game for the dialogue. And then make an informed decision. And no is sacred in my world. So you don't have to be game for everything. But you should be game for anything. And if you follow those three principles, recent research has shown that that is actually borne out. That when people are good giving in game, they have stronger, healthier relationships. A group of research team actually tested Dan's good giving in game approach, and they were able to confirm that it is good for relationships.
1: Well, I can't think of a a better note to actually end the podcast on, even though that was an add-on question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thanks for, thank you for indulging me. We are going to provide links to purchase with sprinkles on top in the show notes. And also, again, a reminder that the links to the free worksheets will also be provided. And if you enjoyed this podcast and want to support more of our work, please consider donating at the link at the bottom of the show notes.
1: And as always, if you want to help, you can share this podcast with your vanilla friends, partners, or lovers so that they can start learning about kink.
2: Don't be afraid to love what you love.
1: Love how you love. And love who you love. If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at Podcast. You can find us at knppodcast.tumblr.com or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com.